morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Malachi. Um, and as I was preparing and thinking uh, through this passage that we're going to look at this morning, I was reminded about the teaching of our Lord Jesus that comes in Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, uh, starting at verse 43, Jesus says this, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not take figs from thorn bushes or dates from briars. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I know you've heard me say this before, but Jesus is actually a really good teacher. Like, he's really good. Like, he's actually so good we can learn from him. It's crazy, I know, right? But the thing about Jesus in this passage, he starts off with kind of something very simple that everyone would understand. And that simple thing is that every tree will be recognized by its fruit. You don't need a PhD, you don't need anything more than a PF with a common sense to know that that is true, right? When you look at an orange tree, it should have oranges. When you look at an apple tree, it should have apples. Every tree is recognized by its fruit. When I was in sixth grade, uh, in good old Palisades Park, New Jersey, we had a big project in the fall. Now, this is the age of internet, but we had to go to these places called libraries, right? And you didn't just go to libraries because they were fun and you needed books. You went to libraries that could do work, right? Uh, and so for Mr. Beasley's project in this little town in New Jersey, the man wanted us to identify every single tree we could find, right? And as, as typical 11, 12-year-olds, we all hated it. Like, no one was excited about this project because we all knew that, like, not only did we have to climb trees or wait for trees and uh, the leaves to fall, but we had to get a special kind of book that cost too much money. And I'd rather buy Snickers bars and bagels and you're close to New York, the bagels are good, slices of pizza, anything but this book that I had to buy. It was kind of like a photo album, right? And so you have to put the leaves on it, you cover it up, and then you have to go to the library and get this big book that no one else read except Mr. Beach in sixth grade class. And you have to identify every single leaf, right? And, and we hated it until, like, the, 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 the competitive pieces kicked in, right? Because he never gave you how long it had to be. You can go to your friend, we'll just call him Jimmy Russo, we'll just call him Jimmy Russo, right? And you go to your friend Jimmy, and you're like, hey, Jimmy, uh, how many leaves do you got? And Jimmy Russo says, I don't know, a random number, like 37. And you know you only got 17, and you say, well, we got work to do, right? And, and so that's how I learned about fruit. And all these years later, you know, I could be like in Alaska or in Monrovia, I'd be like, that's a fruit, right? And I think it's not even type of fruit, maybe, but now I got the internet in my pocket, so it's a little bit better, right? But the point is, Jesus starts off with something that everyone in the audience would have understood. A tree to be known by their fruit. And in fact, it's so straightforward that, you know, if you want figs, you probably shouldn't be looking at thorn bushes, right? If you want grapes, you probably shouldn't go to briars. So he builds up on the simple teaching with straightforward and it's sensible. But then he adds something more. See, the ancients had this idea that the park was kind of like a, a excited step. It was a, a scroll, but the idea was simply that, like, the things that you valued, you would hold on to. And it's almost like if you have something very, very valuable, right, and you would take it and you would hide it in your little box so no one else could touch it it's valuable to you, that's how the ancients understood their heart. We see this also, and Luke talks about this too, because remember when the shepherd comes to see Mary. In that passage, we read it, not just a Christmas, but we read in Luke chapter 2. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord God has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The things that we value, right? The ancient things that you took them, you didn't hold them in your mind, but you actually physically or you put it into your heart to store it up for later. Because you don't know when the time's going to come, right? The storm or the, the hard time's going to come, but you're going to have to go into that treasure chest and remember that memory and pull it out of yourself. So the heart was the treasure chest of what you value. So they all would have known that. But the new teaching that Jesus has is like, with your mouth. That mouth of yours. When you open up that mouth, it's actually going to reveal what you have been storing in 
So when it comes out of your mouth, you can't be like, well, I didn't mean it. Because Jesus is going to argue you've been storing it up inside. And it's only now that we can help. And for those of us who like to talk, we feel just a little bit extra this morning, maybe, right? Because we know that it might slip out, but it didn't quite slip out. And so I want us to hold that image of what we value being our heart, that our mouth and our words revealing where we really are. And it's with that image we go into the end of Malachi this morning. Because for this entire book, this entire letter, this entire sermon, whatever you want to call it, Malachi has simply been saying, Israel, you are unfaithful. That arrogance is because your heart is full of pride. That arrogance has led to a straightforward me calling you out. You've been unfaithful as people. You've been unfaithful as people. You've been unfaithful as God's people. You've been unfaithful as husbands. You've been unfaithful as anyone who's supposed to be in this covenant. You are unfaithful. And then he's like, I'm going to go on vacation now. But as he's going through this teaching, right, Malachi's sense inside of him is that Israel's values are off. That he's going to give a strict message to them that the reason you're so arrogant, the reason you're so unfaithful, is because your heart is full of pride. And this arrogance comes out in our text. If you have your Bible, turn with me now to Malachi chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 13 to 18. We'll also have it up front so you can see it there as well. Starting at verse 13. You've spoken against me, says the Lord Yahweh. Yet you ask, what if we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certain evil doers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who fear the Lord talk with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I ask of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, they will be my treasured possession. Another translation says, they will be my jewels. I will spare them, just as the Father has compassion on his own son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Because those who serve God and those who do not. Let's pray. Our Father, my God, we thank you this morning for the chance to come before you as a people, as a family, as a congregation, as daughters and sons of you, the King. Father, now as we meditate and, and learn together and lean into this text, we come before you humbly, Lord. We pray that any arrogance is inside of us, that we leave it at the door. We pray now for humility as you challenge us, as you push us forward. Father God, we pray that you empty us of our pride. All those things that we hold on to, that make us who we are, but that pull us away from you because it doesn't look like you, empty us of that pride. So Jesus, actually, you have down by the Father. We pray this morning that you fill us up with love. You fill us up with mercy. You fill us up with grace. He fills up with compassion, so much so that the love, the mercy, the grace, and the passion that comes from you, God, pours out of us and into the world. Holy Spirit, we pray now that with that love, mercy, grace, and compassion, that you would empower us to have hope, even when it is hard, even when the dark is all around us, even when the evil doers seem to be prospering, even when we start to believe that there are women and there are women in the end. But we forget that in all things you are good, that in all ways you will be good, and that at all times you will be good for your people. And you have me pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. This passage, God begins with, with, with recognizing or at least calling out Israel's sin of arrogance. God begins by accusing the people of speaking arrogantly against them. The Hebrew here has the connotation of you are spoken strong words, bold words, stout words, severe words against me. So God isn't just going to say, like, hey, what's going on? He begins the passage by saying, you're not just unfaithful. But you spoke in harshly, arrogantly against 
And he uses that person on the Yahweh again to remind them, how can you speak against me when I'm the God who saved you, the God who's with you, the God who will always be with you? How can you speak arrogantly against me when I've redeemed you? First, it was Egypt for your forefathers and mothers. Now it's Assyria and Babylon. I've given you a few less. Yet you speak strongly against me. That's really easy for us here to kind of divorce ourselves from the passage, right? Because we say, like, well, I've never spoken arrogantly against the Lord. I've never spoken harshly against the Lord. And then you get to the second half of how and what God sees as arrogant. And that should terrify all of us. Because if we're honest before the Lord, perhaps we have uttered the word. But the Israelites also uttered fear. What if he feels them up? The people claim the innocent. They what if we say? We get defensive. And the ignorance is not our eyes to say innocent. I want to hear that, right? Their ignorance does not hide the pain and say innocent. Because God responds because God says, well, listen, you want to know how you spoken harshly against me? How you've been arrogant before me? You have actually said it is pointless to serve God. Why am I doing what God called me to do? Why am I even listening to God? Why am I even saying I'm trying to follow God? None of this matters. Why am I doing any of this? You have said it does not profit you to follow God. And he actually meant profit. He's saying, like, they're looking at him and they're looking at the relationship with him and it's like, but what do I get out of this? I look at my life, is that any better? I believe in you, but where are you? These are the words of speaking against God. You're even looking at worship and, and being relationship with me, not as celebration and joy, but as mourners at a funeral. When you come to worship me, you have no joy in your heart. And we know this because throughout the passage, right? Throughout the, the, the text so far, we know that they've come and brought things that weren't worthy of God to the altar. We know that it's it come to the altar, not even supporting the work of the kingdom. We know that it's not just what they, they brought to the altar, but even themselves, they have come not even prepared for worship. And God sees this as arrogant. So we're moving from unfaithfulness to, oh, you broke the covenant, to how dare you say you worship me? If this is how you treat me. We see God not as just like forever being that can't be touched or can't be moved, but God is someone who's invested in us so personally that if we're not giving him our all, he sees that as arrogance. He sees that as unfaithfulness. And it's pointless to serve God, you say, and it's not possible for you to follow God. It's not pleasing to stand before God. And then God continues. You are the one who are calling the arrogant proud. You're calling the arrogant proud blessed. You are the one for calling the evildoers prosperous. You are the woman who think that people can test me, that people can challenge me and get away with it. And I think that's a helpful distinction. Because God never calls evil good. God never calls the arrogant and the proud blessed. God never calls the evil people who are going around prospering prosperous. We do that. And I think that's important for us to remember. When we look at the evil in the world, God never sees evil in the world as, wow, I'm so glad kids in Africa don't have water to drink this morning. God doesn't look at wars that have been fighting with women and children fighting for their lives. And says, you know what? That looks good to me. Just this week, Russia forgave countries in Africa $25 billion. And the first question becomes, how do we even own $25 billion? Like, you're a fool. You know, like, how do we even own 25 billion? Well, it's because they want you to forget the words that are available. And because Africa has the resources. And Africa has the people. And my fear for a lot of us Africans, our fear is that there is a next world war. It's not going to be in the West. It's going to be in Africa. So you have the U.S. government that's building military bases up and up. And you have Russia who's forgiving loans that we didn't even ask for. They all that to say, when evildoers are prospering, God never blesses it. We do. When there's darkness in the world, God never says, look at that darkness, it's so good. 
God is blessed, and He's blessed as we are blessed. And when God sees us, He says, and a call of remembrance was written in this chapter concerning those who fear the Lord and honor His name. Now, a lot of people think that means that the scripture, right? Like, that God ordered the scripture to happen. I don't really think that's what happened. I think mean, God's reminding them that every single thing that you do, I'm seeing it. So when Jesus comes years later, generations later, and says, God cares people about that cup of water you give to somebody, this is what he's building on. But when, when, when the scriptures later on tell us to, to pray for one another, to, to cast our burdens on one another, to carry one another, this is the scripture he's basing it on. We need each other and that's okay. That's very different than the Christianity some of us people have been here. It's always how me and God are doing it. But God always seems to be concerned with how are you and your sister and brother doing how are we doing? How are we doing together? So those who fear the Lord, those who fellowship together, God sees it and He writes it down. Every single coffee you have, God sees it. And it's not because God don't like coffee, because God likes to connect you with your sister and brother. Every single lunch you have, every single phone call, every single text message, God sees that. Because here's the thing, the longer we are apart, I have so many friends. Who are either struggling with their faith or walking away from their faith. And 99 out of 100, I only get that 1% because my statistics professors do not, right? But 99 out of those 100 are pulled out of community. They, they've broken down the faith so much that they're deconstructing by themselves. And there's nothing left to build up because they go months upon months of not being poured into and having no one poured into them. I was in Alaska, and there's something in Alaska called fish, right? And they're everywhere. And something wild happens with fish when you take it out of the water. They flop around for a little bit, but eventually they die. The water of the ocean is the body of Christ. The water of the ocean for you is your sister and brother, too. And there's so many of us who jump out of the water. We're flopping on the boat, and we're wondering why it's so hard to breathe. We're wondering why it's so hard to do it on our own. It's hard because you're not meant to do it on your own. You're not meant to do it on your own. And the longer you stay on that boat, the closer you are to death. So the Lord says, I stop and I see when the remnant of my people come together in community and talk to each other and fellowship together. And when God sees it, God moves. He sees and hears the faithful. He records the faithfulness of the faithful. And then he says something very beautiful. On that day when I die, he says, Y'all worry about the future, you worry about the evil doers possibly. But on the day I die, before we get to them, I want you to know something. You are indeed my treasure we're building on this idea, right? That the things we treasure, we hold in our heart. God says, the thing I treasure and hold in my heart is Jesus. And, 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 and that blew me away because my understanding of treasure possession was more like when you have a budget and you pay the bills and the kids take the rest and that little $2 you get left over that you can buy a HP whatever and you go to Reader, right? And you can buy an ice cream and eat it and eat. That was my idea of pleasure production. The money that you do anything with and enjoy. That's only half of it. The other half is that feeling you get biting into that reason. That feeling you get biting into that space for some of us. That feeling pales into comparison with what God feels for you. Because while God wants us to store up good things in our heart, God wants us to know that He's storing us in His heart, and that's where He holds it. And He considers us not just a treasure possession, that the, the Hebrew is actually better translated as, You are my jewels. Now, I don't wear a lot of jewelry, but people who wear jewelry tend to like jewels. And then I was thinking about this, and I was reading that, and this one comment that said it like this. He's like, here's the thing about jewels that also applies to us as Christians, and especially the people in Malachi's life. Life is hard, so they are hard, but they're also durable. We've made it through. 
They're tied for their time and luxury. But they're also tied for their marriage. They're made, not by men, but by God alone. They have all different sizes, all different colors, yet they are all jewels. They're found not just here, but all over the world. They're associated with royalty and protection. Some are hidden and undiscovered. Some are not yet found. And that's what we think about the jewels that we put on our bodies. How much more does God value us? How much more does God look at your struggle and say, I see you making it through, so I'm with you in the struggle. How much did God prize you when you stand for His glory? How rare does God believe you are when you're faithful and everyone else is not? How proud of you, how proud of you is God when He realizes that you know that you come from Him and Him alone. That you can come from Monovia, Liberia, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You can come from, from Tokyo, Japan. You belong to him. And the God of this world, the King of all kings, is not just associated with you. God is about to be into that family so that you can be kings and kings with him. The protection. I think the one that really stuck out here is this last three ones, right? Some are hidden and discovered. And as I thought about what it means to be the water that surrounds each other, as I thought about what it means to be the body of Christ together, as I thought about the need for us to be pouring into each other, we're being poured into. Maybe, just maybe, your friendship, your prayers, your love, your compassion, is what's going to take that hidden jewel that your sister and brother and help them Maybe that, that the people who are a little bit rough on the edges. Maybe God calls you and placed you in your life to smooth them out a little bit. Just a little bit. Not enough to lose who they are, but enough for them to start to become who they are in Christ. Amen? And so God says, you are my treasure's perfection. You are my jewel. And then he closes, at least this part of the text, with a promise for compassion. What's interesting about this promise for compassion Remember, this is a covenant time, this is a covenant God, this is a covenant people. God doesn't just say, I will be compassionate, because I'm compassionate. If you go back to the text, I will spare them just as the Father has compassion spared his own son who serves God has compassion here to our faithfulness to him. God's saying to the people, I've given you hundreds of years, generations upon generations, you keep falling short. You are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. If you are compassionate to each other, I will be compassionate to you. After he establishes it, if you're my jewels, you're my crown jewels, you're my treasure blessing, you're my friends and daughters, you're my people, you're my family, then he talks about the wicked. And he says, on that last day, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And I think, that is probably the healthiest version that we can get of what happens to I grew up in a Christianity where we were so obsessed about this. We're so obsessed about not being left behind and the day of judgment and, and when Jesus is actually going to come back. That was a big thing in the 20th century. Seems like every decade is a new Christian denomination who knew exactly when Jesus was going to come. And even as a kid, I was like, I don't know much about the Bible. But I'm pretty sure in there somewhere it says nobody knows when. So how did you do the math, reading scripture with the English, and you get math to figure out the day? God doesn't want us so wrapped up in the evil of the world, in the evil doers of the world, in the darkness of the world, in the judgment for them to come, that we lose ourselves in what we're supposed to be doing. Let God be God, amen? Are you willing to be you? Let trust God to be God. You know, what's funny about this to me is I struggle with this. Because when really bad things happen, I'm like, God, are you sure you're ready yet? I don't know the time, but it's in the Right? But it's in the real. But the thing is, there's so many other things that happen that are tragic that I'm willing to trust God in. When something happens tragically to a little child, I trust God to God is good and God is in healing for that family. When something happens, I don't understand it. 
tough guy that God will work it out. And yet, when I see people, I become like the people of Malachi. I'm like, well, it's too much of it, God. I need you to get rid of it now. And God simply wants the people to know, trust me in that truth. And that time comes, I will be the God who does it. But for now, let me be the God who sees you, who calls you, who leads you to join in this world. Again, with the passage in Luke 6, where Jesus says, we will be recognized by our fruit. I think that's one of the lessons we can pull from this text. We ought to look like Jesus. And if we don't look like Jesus, we ought to be careful calling ourselves by His name. Christians in the simplest Greek to English would be Christ one, the one who follow Jesus. Like when they talk about the marriage of the Lamb and the bride of Christ and the marriage of Christ, they take you out of the get it. But it's also contextual and cultural. And in that culture, when you marry, you took the husband's name. So by calling yourself a Christian and calling yourself the bride of Christ, you have now taken Jesus' name. You ought to look like Jesus. If we don't look like Jesus, that's like all of us going outside and buying an apple tree and taking some orange. Each person will be recognized by their fruit. So the question to us becomes, are we looking like our God? Not just to ourselves. If you can look like God to yourself, oh God, you're not all that good anymore. You know? But do you look like God to your world? And even more than that, do you look like Jesus to your partner? That's the question for all of us. Because the other thing is, not only will we be recognized by our fruit, Quite often, it's not just about the words that we say. I said this years ago. The person I listen to six chapters, I was struck by how we as Christians, you know, I say like, like your actions, right? Like, don't listen to my words, look at my actions. You know, something happens to those of us who grew up in church. We're really good at actions, and we don't really feel like it. So that doesn't work for us because we can do what ought to be done and look like material mortals. In the text, right? We can do what needs to be done and not be happy at all about it. And God says, I see that too. Because that, that, that frustration that you're holding in your heart, that unhappiness that you're holding in your heart, no one else might see it. You smile real fake and you smile real good. But I see that too. And the challenge for us here is that we will be the sum of what we store in our heart. So the question that that becomes, what are you storing in your heart? And for me, this is something I have to consistently check myself on, right? Like, what books am I reading? Like, like what, what, what links or websites am I listening to or, or reading, right? Who am I talking to? Who am I letting be poured into me? Because everything that's being poured into me is what gets stored in my heart. And if it gets stored in my heart, it not just comes out in my words. It comes out in my actions, too. It comes out in my values, too. So what am I actually doing? Who's actually being poured into me? Because if I'm the sum of what's in my heart, maybe I ought to ask myself, what am I holding in my heart? Because we will see what the hearts are full of. And the last thing I think is really good for us to hold on to here is that we ought to be intentional about fixing our faith. I kept it like that because that's what my uncle used to say to me. Like, when I was asking now, I got a talking to, and I didn't quite like it, she would say, what? Fix your face. And when she said that, I acted up real good. You know, I was like, woo-woo. It's like, it's automatic, right? It's just, fix your face, I got it. You know? What I mean by this fix your face is that we have to get better at looking up and not looking down. Because here's the thing. You can't look up and down at the same time. It's impossible. You can either look up or you can look down. And if we're looking down, it's going to be hard to see our God in person. Yes, Lord, says it like this. A proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Yeah, I like that too, but I'm like, yes, Lord, that means you know I'm right, right? But it's a simple truth. It's a very practical thing. We've got to get better at looking up and not looking down. 
the more we look down, the easier it is to hold on to Christ. The more we look up and see how small we are, how big our God is, how amazing our God is, we can definitely then move forward. So fix your face, look up, not down. The second thing I think we ought to be doing is instead of looking around for all you can see, you got to get better at looking together for each other. I'm looking at this looking thing, this looking thing, this looking thing. I'm still disconnected. I'm seeing all the dark parts up. But if I'm looking for your hands to hold and your face to reach, and we're looking in it together, and we're moving together, there's something different about that. There's something even beautiful there, I say. I have to get to your Lord's mercy. I'm about to do it. It says it like this. A circle that stands forever. It covers all who wish to hold hands. Size depends on each other. It's a vision of solidarity. It turns outward to interact with the outside and inward to self-esteem. A circle expands forever. It is a vision of accountability. It grows as the other is moved to grow. The circle must have a center. But a single dot does not make a circle. One tree does not make a forest. A circle, a vision of cooperation, mutuality, and care. My prayer for all of us. That we're seeking to be in this circle together. Because a lot of us are so good at being dumb. We're so good at being free. We're so good at being individuals. But I believe the call of Christ, I believe the call of even Malachi here, is we are in this together. Are you willing to slow down a little bit and reach back for a hand to grab? For some of us, we're trying to reach and catch up with us. Are you willing to slow down a little bit and reach back and walk hand in hand with us? Because I think that's what the body of Christ looks like. Are we willing to be a circle and not just the group of individuals? There's an African proverb I want to close with, and we'll go to communion and center. The proud person looks everywhere and does not know what to look for. The humble person looks for one thing. As we then come to the communion table this morning, may we not be the proud people who are looking for God everywhere else but where He is. When we come to this table, focus on not just our one thing, but our one person who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Patty is going to join us. Um, as you join me as we come up with uh, communion reading. Again, we, um, I think we had them at the door, so hopefully you got it coming in. If you did not, just raise your hand, squeeze in the back, and you can give it, give you the communion. Um, if you have it already, you are good. Again, we ask that everyone is, you don't have to be a member of this church to partake in communion with us, but we do ask that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as a command of Scripture. you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be His true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak, not because we have any claim on heaven's reward, but because in our frailty, we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. The supper of the Lord is before us. Let us lift up our hearts and minds, and above all selfish fears and cares, let us take the bread and the cup. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And woe to those who are hungry now, for they will be satisfied. And woe to those who are well satisfied, for they will go hungry. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh.
One way that we celebrate belonging to God upside down kingdom is to share the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given to you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing, and he told his disciples, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured off to you. Do this whenever you drink it, and remember to me. I think we have another reason to do this. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for this bread, which represents your body. The body, Lord Jesus, you gave to us freely, willingly, lovingly. We thank you for your deep compassion that brought you to death on the cross. We thank you that through your brokenness we have been healed. Through you facing the darkness that we turn, the darkness that we are, you have brought light into the world. So now, Lord, help us as we take this bread to remember how good you are to us and how you are broken so that we can be broken. In your name we pray. Sisters and brothers, this cup of blessing which we bless is enough to communion into the blood of Christ. Service is uh, usually baskets on the side where you choose to put your cups in. Um, at this time, I'd like to call up the worship team. We're going to close with our last song. Uh, we as pastors will stay up front. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, if you want to pray for something in response to anything that happened in the service or anything that's going on in life, we'd love to pray for you about that as well. Um, as we stand and sing together, we need to be reminded of this call that God has on all of us not to not only belong to Him, but belong to one another. Let's stand and sing together. Oh, 